Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 67th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is cybersecurity audits for law firms. We're delighted to welcome as today's guest, Sherry Davidoff, who is the CEO of LMG Security and the co-author of Network Forensics, Tracking Hackers Through Cyberspace. She has over 15 years of experience as a cybersecurity professional, specializing in digital forensics, penetration testing, and security awareness training. Sherry is a GIAC certified forensic examiner, that's a GCFA, and a penetration tester, GPEN, and holds her degree in computer science and electrical engineering from MIT. Sherry was also a recent newbie speaker at ABA Tech Show, where Sharon and I got to meet her. Welcome, Sherry. Thanks, Don. It's always a pleasure to get to hang out with you guys, and we have fantastic discussions. I'm looking forward to it. Well, why don't we start at the beginning and ask you to define for us what a cybersecurity audit is, because I'm suspecting many listeners don't know it all. <laughs> well, I think, as you know, that is a trick question. Um, I'm not sure anyone is precisely sure what a cybersecurity audit is. If you ask five different security companies, you will get five different answers and probably five different reports. We are in a very new industry right now, uh, but typically what you will get if you ask for a cybersecurity audit or if someone asks you is what we would call a controls assessment or a gap assessment. So you would go through a cybersecurity framework, which is basically a checklist of the things you need to do for cybersecurity and determine whether or not your organization is in compliance with each of those items in the checklist. I'm curious to know from your perspective, is that what you're seeing in the industry as well? A lot of questionnaires, I think, um, as well. The funny part about getting those questionnaires, which are really self-assessments, is that the clients don't even understand the questions, which means the answers aren't going to make much sense. Right. And that's where third-party providers come in to help attorneys understand exactly what's being asked and to help interface between IT and law firm management. So, Sherry, tell us a little bit about what's your thoughts on what's driving these audits. Well, first and foremost, um, as we were talking before we started the podcast, you'll notice that there's data breaches in the news. I believe just this week there were articles in the Wall Street Journal and some other major publications about the fact that law firms are getting hacked and we're starting to see public postings um, like the one on darkmoney.cc where hackers are offering their services to fish law firms. And you and I and other security experts know that this has been going on for years, but it hasn't really been in the public spotlight until much more recently. What exactly is a cybersecurity framework? That's another thing that perplexes people. Yeah, again, these are very new terms. Um, when you're doing a cybersecurity audit, or even just when you're figuring out where to start, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are many very smart people around the world that have created these cybersecurity checklists for you. And some examples of those are the NIST cybersecurity framework put out by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or you may have heard of the ISO 27001 Information Security Management Framework. So again, don't reinvent the wheel. Take a look at some of those checklists. They're very useful and informative. So Sherry, a little bit more on the framework. I know a little bit about it, you know, and I know yourself and Sharon and I, we, we kind of live and breathe this stuff on a weekly basis, but I kind of sense that some of these frameworks scare law firms, especially the solo and small market. 
So can you talk a little bit more about the framework, some of the details and kind of where it fits in, into what part of maybe size of law firm as a good starting point? Sure. I mean, as with anything, what you get out of it is going to depend on what you put into it. As Sharon alluded to, sometimes you can use your cybersecurity framework as almost a questionnaire, or you can have someone come in and do an in-depth technical and non-technical audit of your organization and go through all of your policies and procedures. Um, it's important. The checklists have a lot of different items in them, and so they can seem daunting. And it's important not to be afraid of failure. When Sharon and I were speaking at the ABA Tech Show, the title of our talk was Passing Your Cybersecurity Audit. And we kind of joked around because there really is no such thing as passing. And right now, at this moment in the industry, it is completely normal for attorneys, law firms, even you know other kinds of corporations to go through an assessment and find that they come out with a 20 percent compliance rate or a 39% compliance rate. And, you know, if you were in college, that would be an F, but when it comes to your cybersecurity <laughs> roadmap, that's okay. And think of it as a good place to start. It'll mean if you're at a 29% compliance this year, that's great because it means next year you can show how much progress you've made just in the course of a year. And a lot of times it's really just about documentation. I mean, that tends to be the biggest missing piece that people have. And I also really want to help people feel comfortable with cybersecurity frameworks because a lot of attorneys are getting this pressure from their clients to adhere to certain cybersecurity controls. And you might get a list of 10 different points and say, okay, we're going to address this list that one client sent us. And what you're going to find is six months later, another client is going to send you a different list and then you're going to have to adhere to that. And then in another few months, another client will send you a different list. So it's a good idea to stick with a framework because that's going to be something that people are going to accept across the board rather than trying to hit this moving target as different clients decide what's important for them and then send it to you. So in the long run, you're going to save money. You're going to save time and effort if you pick a commonly accepted framework and standard and start with that and then provide those results to every client that asks you. Can you comment a little bit, Sherry, on, on the cost of it? I know within the last week, I just read an article that where uh, at least some of the major law firms were complaining about the cost of complying, especially with the NIST cybersecurity framework and about about half of them said that they weren't going to go down that road because it was too expensive. Well, it is very expensive. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're building a house, making sure that you have a strong foundation. Okay, nobody sees it. But in the long run, it's better for you if it's there and if it's solid. I think up until this point, it's been really hard for the legal industry to justify the expense of cybersecurity. And frankly, this may be a little controversial, but I don't think there has been the incentive there. It hasn't hit the bottom line. With financial institutions, they invest in cybersecurity because if a financial institution gets hacked, they will lose money. And it's easy to convey that to upper management. At law firms, if you lose client data, who finds out, you know, and who gets hurt? You might never even know about it. It's not the same as losing $50,000. And it's hard to figure out what you should invest when you can't quantify the cost of something. Ransomware is changing that. Now that law firms are getting hit with yeah. ransomware and they're seeing operational outages, that is something we can quantify. And so for the first time, we're seeing attorneys really pay attention to security, to role-based access control, to setting proper permissions and proper authentication, um, meaning verifying people's identities, and making sure that your backups are in place. So all these things, which are really just good security hygiene and that other organizations have been forced to practice for years, are just now coming back to attorneys who are finally seeing direct incentives for investing in cybersecurity. 
How do you advise attorneys to prepare for clients that might ask to see cybersecurity audits? Well, again, I think um, being proactively prepared to deal with that is very important. And we boiled it down in our presentation to three different steps. Number one, make sure you've already picked a cybersecurity framework, one of the most popular ones, like the NIST cybersecurity framework or the ISO 27001, and have a cybersecurity audit done so that you don't have to scramble when you're asked. Because again, this is, this is gonna happen. So be prepared to provide those results. You don't necessarily have to give your clients a full report of every single issue in your law firm. Instead, you could give them a letter of attestation or a summary from the security company or person conducting the audit that just says you done it. And if they need a summary, then you can give that to them as well. So that's the first thing. Second thing is your risk assessment and risk management plan. If you don't have a risk assessment and risk management plan, you haven't really completed the cybersecurity planning process because you're going to come out of your cybersecurity audit with way more than you can ever possibly do. There's no such thing as perfect security. In fact, you're not going to be able to correct every single issue or every single vulnerability and make it perfect. Instead, what you do is a risk assessment where you identify your threats, you identify your vulnerabilities, and then you prioritize so that the things that are the greatest risk are the ones that you address first. And your clients are not going to expect perfection. That's another thing to remember. I've worked with many different organizations uh, that are being requested to do this. And I had one client of a client actually say to us on the phone, if you were to send us a perfect cybersecurity audit, we wouldn't believe it was true because it's just not possible. So instead, what your savvy clients are really looking for is a plan, a one or three or five-year plan, more typically three to five-year plan that shows how you're going to push the ball forward on cybersecurity and how you're going to manage those risks over time. And then the third thing is your technical test results. So make sure that you've had cybersecurity testing done. You need to make sure that what is on paper actually does match what's in reality. And if you have some major security flaw, you want to discover that right away. And your clients need a, a level of comfort with your testing processes. So Sherry, take that out a little bit more. What kind of proactive cybersecurity testing should they be doing? That's a great question. And again, we're really just starting to come to convergence on this as an industry. A penetration test is very common, and that's something that actually my company does. It's where hackers break into your network and write reports about it, ethical hackers, your testers. And it's very important because you want those flaws to be discovered by people who are on your side before real hackers discover them. And I'll give you an example. We did a test last year for one of the top law firms in the nation, and it was a penetration test of their internet-facing systems. It included a web application penetration test, and they had a client portal so that clients could log in, they could see their billing information, they could see their case notes, they could see their files, everything. It was super convenient. And we found that from the internet, without any login credentials whatsoever, no username, no password, we were able to what we call bypass the authentic and download all of their client files. So all of their notes, all of their billing records, every file that they had ever uploaded, we were able to access. And it's so important that we discover that on their behalf. It's not the kind of thing that you want to read about in the newspaper or because someone posted that information on the internet. So it may seem like an investment up front, but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow 
understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up to date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is cybersecurity audits for law firms. Our guest, Sherry Davidoff, is the CEO of LMG Security and the co-author of Network Forensics, Tracking Hackers Through Cyberspace. Sherry, can you explain why it is so important to keep track of your data and so challenging? Oh, you know, I think this is maybe the most overlooked part of any organization's security plan. A lot of people come in and they have cybersecurity audits done and, you know, whatever comes out of it comes out of it. But sometimes they've forgotten to take that first step of really accounting for all of their data. And the biggest hole that I see are firms or corporations where employees work from home. But the problem is all of a sudden that means that someone's home computer is then functionally part of your corporate infrastructure and it could potentially have your client information on it. And what happens if their teenage kid is on there or the computer gets mad? malware or the computer gets stolen or God forbid the employee is terminated and you can't get that computer back. And that means that your client information is also something that you can't get back. So a lot of times people try to not think about this or we don't like to think about the problem, but you need to track the flow of your data and think about all the different places that your client data could end up. And there's a couple different steps you can take to manage it. Number one, it's a good idea to restrict the flow of data wherever you can, because wherever it goes, there's liability associated with it. So you can do that with technical countermeasures, making it technically difficult or impossible for people to download client data onto their personal devices. Or you can simply have a policy in place that says you can check email from home, but you're not allowed to download download things. And I would make sure that you have everybody sign that and train them carefully, depending on the level of technical investment that you want to have. Also think about how client data may end up on thumb drives, USB devices, or on people's phones. If somebody leaves their phone in a parking lot at Best Buy, is your client data there as well? If they lose a USB at the gym, is that your client data on it? So think about those issues. They often think, Sherry, that if they lose their phone, they think that there's nothing on the phone because they haven't saved an attachment that they viewed to the phone or they haven't deliberately saved a voicemail they've listened to to the phone. But as you and I know, that is fallacious. Well, yes. And actually, Sharon, that's a really interesting point. I've done quite a bit of work in the past for hospitals. And of course, hospitals have laptops on rolly carts and iPads and tablets, and they're constantly being moved throughout large organizations. And so as you might expect, these things walk out the door. And so at various points, my job has actually been to do a technical analysis of those devices to determine what exactly is cached. And the fact is, if you just view an attachment, even if you don't download it, or if you just view a web page, even if you don't download it, that information can be cached somewhere on that device, either in a temporary folder or somewhere else. So it's important to have a technical person look at your setup to verify that there is actually no client data stored on those devices or to advise you if there is. That's another reason why we call BYOD, bring your own disaster. Oh, I like it. <laughs> and I want to sidetrack for a moment. We touched on healthcare organizations there. Um, do you mind if I take a moment just to talk about some of the drivers? Going back to our earlier question, may I speak for a moment about some of the big changes in the industry that are driving cybersecurity audits? Uh, absolutely. Help yourself. 
Okay. So um, as I mentioned, I do work with law firms, but I also work with a lot of financial institutions and healthcare organizations and SEC regulated organizations. And there have been sweeping changes this year in the ways that those organizations are being examined and audited themselves. So right now, law firms and attorneys are seeing requests and other types of organizations are seeing requests from their big clients in the financial industry or healthcare. And these requirements are being pushed down on them as vendors. And there are a few key changes this year. Number one, the Office of Civil Rights for the very first time is going to be auditing a selected group of business associates. So if you have signed a HIPAA BAA, they're not just auditing organizations that are directly regulated by HIPAA, your healthcare organizations. They are also picking the organizations, the business associates that work for those organizations and auditing them. So if you have a healthcare organization as a client, and you are a business associate, potentially you could get randomly selected. Now, again, this is the first year, and so it's going to be a fairly small group, but still, that is a big first step. Wow. Yeah. And then speaking of the shot heard around the world, I read your article on that, Sharon, and I think that this is another one. Um <laughs> Financial institutions also have undergone big changes this year. So in June, the FFIEC published a cybersecurity assessment tool for financial institutions. And that's a specific document that talks about the different maturity levels that there are for cybersecurity programs and also what each financial institution's inherent risks are. And they are now examining financial institutions and checking to see if the maturity level of the cybersecurity program is in line with the inherent risk of the institution. And what that means for us, for anyone who serves these organizations is that there are now formal requirements where that financial institutions require vendors to adhere to specific security practices. And financial institutions are also required to do some kind of diligence and oversight, make sure that their vendors are producing security reports and conducting security tests. So in these two industries alone, we're seeing a real shift of attention to vendors and to service providers that handle sensitive information. And of course, attorneys handle a lot of sensitive information on behalf of our clients. Let's go a little bit different direction here. And, and can you explain to our, our listeners what a risk assessment is and why it's so important? Yep. So we briefly touched on that when we were talking about how you keep your clients happy. Your risk assessment is a list that you or a third party puts together that describes to the greatest extent possible all of the cybersecurity risks that you face, all the stuff that keeps you up at night that makes it hard to sleep. And then you evaluate what's the likelihood of this occurring. And if it occurred, what is the potential impact? And based on those factors, you then rank them so that you can address the highest risk items first. And that's how you prioritize and that's how you come up with your three to five year plan. And that's how you know where to invest your resources. Don't waste time on the stuff that's low risk. Instead, invest time on the stuff that's most important. You and I, when we talked at ABA Tech Show, we kept saying there's only so much you can do and the smaller you are, the more that tends to be the case. So we called cyber insurance a way to fill the gap, the the risk gap. So can you tell attorneys what they should be looking for in a cyber insurance policy? Yes, absolutely. First of all, it's going to depend on exactly what you want to insure for. So think about the types of information you handle. Do you handle medical information? If so, you probably want to get an insurance policy that has coverage for HIPAA violations. You can even get an insurance policy that covers negligence in the event of a HIPAA breach. If you handle a lot of money on behalf of your clients, let's say you're managing trust accounts, you might want a policy that covers loss of cash or uh, wire transfer 
transfer fraud, things like that. And in some cases, that might already be included in some of the insurance you have. You may not necessarily need cyber-specific insurance. We are at a point where cyber insurance is so new that a lot of times insurance agents don't really understand it at the level that they themselves would like. And so make sure that you're involving your IT provider. Make sure if you need to, if it's a complex case, that you reach out to a third-party security expert that really understands the ins and outs of it so that the coverage you get is the coverage you need. Well, Sherry, I think we're probably at the time where we're in a, a breach-a-day world. It seems like every single day you hear of a new breach, but... Can you tell us a little bit about how and, and why attorneys should be preparing for a data breach? Well, breaches happen every day. And I'm actually writing a book for Prentice Hall right now on data breaches. And you say it's a breach a day. I suspect it's more than that. Right now, we see breaches coming out in the news all the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are more of them. It means that there are more breaches getting reported. And I think that's a good thing because as a society, we're becoming honest with ourselves. I know, John and Sharon, that, that all of us have been in the industry for many, many years now, and I've handled dozens, if not hundreds of different cases. And yet I can still count on one hand the number of them that have actually been reported in the news. So people are afraid to report. Mm -hmm. Often they're even afraid to look. People are afraid to monitor their networks because they're worried about finding something that they don't want to see. So I think it'll be better and healthier when we get to a point where as a society, we accept that everybody gets viruses. They're aptly named and information wants to be free. It'll get out there, but we have methods of dealing with them and methods of reducing the risk to the greatest extent possible. So I don't know if that answered your question, John, but I think it's a really interesting topic and one yes. that I hope we talk more about. Well, I, I think as we hear more and more about law firm breaches and the, the recent ones, that just hit the news here, the two big uh, AMLAW 100 guys, I think it's going to be on the radar for a lot of attorneys. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I hope we come to a point as a society where people don't have to be scared and we have standard ways of dealing with it and standard ways of preventing it. Because unless we're honest with ourselves and we actually look for breaches and we report them, that's how we're going to start to be able to quantify them and then to manage them. Where do you think all this is going with these two AMLA 100 firms having acknowledged that they were breached suddenly last summer, to quote from a Tennessee Williams screenplay? There were other law firms breached as well. They simply were not named in the article and the source of the information about the breaches was not identified. And then shortly after this, we hear that another law firm, a class action law firm, is planning on filing suit against some of these large firms for losing client information. I mean, that sounds like one hell of a firestorm recipe to me. What do you think, Sherry? <laughs> well, I certainly agree. And I was fascinated when you were telling me about this earlier. I mean, I know in the recent Home Depot case, Home Depot was required to put aside, I think it was 19 or 19 and a half million dollars to help customers that had been affected because of the breach they had in which they lost 56 million credit card numbers. But the interesting thing that came out of that case, I think, was a reinforcement of the fact that you have to show that there has been harm in order to receive the funds. So I am not an attorney. I'm a geek, um, but I thought that was interesting. And I'm curious to see where this is going because I think, again, there's such a disincentive for reporting right now because people are scared of what the results will be. And nobody knows exactly, you know, what might come out of a lawsuit. But if we have standard methods of having to demonstrate harm, then that might help people to feel a little more comfortable about what the risk level is. What are your thoughts on that, on the most recent case? 
I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. I think Pandora's box has just been, you know, blow, the cover's been blown off of it. And a lot of people are going to be doing a lot of hard questioning of law firms. Uh, and Lord knows what they'll say. You know, if they ask them to say absolutely that they haven't been breached, I think they would be lying, most of them, if they said they haven't been breached. So I think there's a, a hot white light shining on the larger law firms now. And I'm sure that they are all scrambling to position themselves in such a way that they can answer clients the way the clients want to be answered, given the fact that we know from Mandiant, which is a division of FireEye and which has done a lot of data breach investigations of law firms, we know that they say 80 of the AMLA 100, 80% of them have been breached. Well, if that's the case, there's a lot that they have to answer for, I'm sure, in the eyes of their clients, unless they've told their clients about these breaches. And I'm not sure that most of them have. So I'm not sure they're abiding by their ethical duties. I'm not sure they're abiding by the data breach notification laws. I'm not saying they're not, but my eyebrows are up and I'm certainly wondering, and I hope somebody is paying attention to the rules of ethics here because I'm afraid that they've been honored in the breach, so to speak. Well, you've got those things to worry about. The FTC, right? The clients themselves, the state bar disciplinary boards. I mean, it's, there's everybody <laughs> is, is going to start looking at you. <laughs> Do you think that coming out of this public is going to question why these weren't reported sooner and maybe even take a harder look at the notification laws? There's already been news articles on that. They're already, yeah, and it's just gathering steam. So we're, we're in a bad place. And I think that our cybersecurity presentation has been stood on its head and everybody wants us to open with this information now. So we're in a new place, a very different place, and it, it has only taken about 48 hours for us to get here. So <laughs> we're just waiting to see what happens next and uh, to duly report it. So it's about time, I guess, that we close. But Sherry, you know, it was such a, a pleasure and honor to speak with you at, at Tech Show. We had a great time. I know the audience had fun. We thank you so much for agreeing to join us today on the podcast. There's so much that you know about the audits and the cyber insurance and things like that. Thank you for sharing your expertise with our audience. Oh, Sharon and John, it is always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and information security services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.